Kimberly here. This is Macabish, cults, classics, and horrors. We're talking films, series, books, and life, and we're starting right now. See, what made you want to change your uh, your pseudonym, though? Like, is it because of the like the TikTok thing where you're saying like? You kind of have to be more of a face, or it's well, like it goes all the when the book went from being this obscure print on demand thing to when the actual publisher bought it and and put it out as a book. It, at that point, it, the the game was up. Like I wasn't the idea of writing anonymously on the internet was over in two thousand seven. So like the very first edition of John Dice, the end, it has my real name and the about the author. It just says because in the book it explains like the main character is david wong and he explains that it's a fake name um and why he's and why he's using it um and then the joke was that the idiot depicted in the book his name's on the cover he's the guy who wrote it like it's a biography which if you then read it it is ludicrous it's the most improbable story possible um but the idea then so like all of my social media in that stage you know and at that point twitter was just around the corner. I don't know what year Twitter came out, 2009, something like that. Um, but on my socials, like I had to start in on Cracked when I started there, the same thing, because they they now are not dealing with me as a columnist with a byline I'm hiding behind. I'm one of the bosses. So like everyone working there, everyone submitting work, they're submitting it to like, it's got to be my real name. It would be weird to pretend to be somebody else. So right. like on the message boards, I had my real name and the signature. And then on my on Twitter, on my little bio, it's got, so at that point, unless you did a very cursory glance, like if you just saw the book on a shelf, you may assume David Wong was the name of the guy that wrote it. But if you look at the flap, it's got my real name on there. So it, the idea of, people finding me and tracking me down. And the thing that I was more worried about in the 2000s was I didn't want people at my day job find, uh, associating the book or the website with me because right. I, I did, I wanted to be able to write incredibly offensive humor and crude humor that, you know, again, this is rural America. This is very religious type, you know, part of the country. And I didn't want um, I didn't want people like a supervisor at work asking me about something I'd written on the website or a blog post or if the book came out. The thing that everyone, if you know an author, the thing everyone asks is, "Well, is that character supposed to be me?" <laughs> like that's not how that's not how mm-hmm. fiction writing works. It would be weird to grab actual people from your life and just put them completely in the book like you may borrow part elements of their personality you may borrow like a, a thing they said or did like a funny anecdote you may wind up in the book but the idea of just grabbing a person you know and putting them in the book if you have to like now write a sex scene or something with it's like is that even <laughs> legal to <laughs> like oh yeah this is this is uh, this is my my old gym teacher and my <laughs> somebody sits in a cubicle next to me at the office and now they're one of them murdered the other. It's like, that would be weird. No, it's fiction. Um, but that's the way people, it, it, they always try to connect it to like, am I being slandered in some way? So I just didn't, I never told them that I wrote on the side. I never at the office at that insurance company, nobody knew. Well, that's not true. I had friends, young people who knew because you can't avoid them knowing 
that it wasn't a thing where like I would come to the office and, and my, my supervisor or the person in the cubicle next to me be like, oh, I read yesterday's column. That was really good. Or no, they didn't know. And, and when I quit to go work at Cranked, because again, I was working there right up until Cranked hired me away. Um, and in fact, when Cranked flew me out to LA to, for the interview, I had to tell them, like, I only have two vacation days left. Like my PTO time, you're asking me to burn it to come out for this interview. I'm not coming out there unless you're hiring me. Like, I won't have any time off left. Like, if I get sick, I can't take time off. Right. Um, and they told me, they're like, no, we're only flying you out here. We're at the stage where it's, 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 we're just basically bringing you out to see if you're, if you're crazy. Um, <laughs> so, but that was part of what the anonymity did. I didn't want my family asking me about it. I just didn't. I, and so I kept that part of my life separate. And that gave me a lot of freedom in the writing because I didn't, if you're writing thinking that your mom is going to read it, it's just, you're writing horror and it's like, okay, will my, will my grandma disapprove of this scene? It's like, yes, she will. Right. Every word of this, <laughs> uh -huh. the entire concept of what you're doing here would be profoundly offensive to her. So I just kept that separate and wrote anonymously. The, once I became a, a professional, I got the book deal. I got, then there was no, like that, that it would have been absurd to try to. So there was never an operation. Like I wasn't in witness protection. It was just a, an internet username. It was always, once I actually started drawing a paycheck, it's Jason Pargin. He writes under the username David Wong, which is a character in the John Dice DN series who he's just borrowed that name. But um, yeah, but, but, but then again, like the first time, you know, Crack launched a podcast in probably 2010, something like that. That was the first time anybody heard my voice. I was calling in from a, a landline phone, um, you know, but back then the technology didn't exist to do what we're doing right now. Because <laughs> again, this is the ancient era of 2012, the, <laughs> the, the ancient era that historians write about in the, the before times. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was like, I, I can't describe how nervous I was doing that like having to converse with and, and these are it's not like these are hostile interviews it's not like i'm bringing on alex jones to confront him about the sandy hook conspiracy theories it was me talking to my friends at, at work but right. even then the idea that okay people are going to be judging me by my inability to pronounce certain things or anytime i make an s sound it hisses into the microphone because i have a speech impediment like that, that now this is going to be part of what I'm judged on is how, how funny I am off the cuff instead of writing a line that took me two hours to come up with. Right. And then the first time I appeared on camera was Jesus. I don't even know. I, I, cause I started a YouTube channel cause somebody told me I had to, and I bought a camera, boy, I don't know, maybe 2015, 2016, something like that. And so now it's like, my my hair is a factor in how people perceive me. The fact that I only mm -hmm. own like one nice shirt because I work <laughs> from home and, and my clothes are just all t-shirts because why why would I still own office clothes? I, I right. work from home. And it's like, so now the fact that it's, gosh, he only owns black and gray t-shirts. That's weird. Like they're <laughs> going to, and I, I'm like conscious of what's in the background. And it's like, well, if I show, if I go out in my yard, they're going to see the house, which means somebody can find the house because they can find it on Google Earth. So it's like, no, I'm going to I'm going to do this in front of a wall, but the wall, like the stairs are in the background. So now they live. No, I live in a two-story house. Are they going to think I'm rich? 
you see what I mean? Like all right. these things that I didn't used to, I wanted the work to be famous. Right. I didn't want, it's the opposite of how most kids are raised in social media era, where it's like, you are famous for being yourself. You're right. famous for what you wear, for being funny or cute or whatever people aspire, you're, you're dynamic, you have adventures. Or the worst thing, you're, you're interesting because of your trauma. So now, mm-hmm. now, now your thing has to be about that. Now you need to talk about your struggles with autism. Like awareness mm-hmm. of that stuff is great. But when the algorithm says, no, we only want to hear about your trauma. We only want to hear about your oh, abuse. Yeah. That's the stuff that really hits. And mm-hmm. you're, an, you're an 18 year old. And instead of getting like the therapy you need, it's TikTok or it's, it's what your Tumblr used to be very big on this. It's like, no, you need to relive your trauma every day. That's, that's the juicy stuff. And people are reading this for entertainment. That's the stuff that I think people would love for me to talk about. Well, yeah, but you were kind of poor growing up. What was that like? Or, Or did you get bullied a lot in school? It's like, yeah, I did, but that's not for you. Right. That's not, Yeah. that, that that's, that's for me to deal with. I, I'm not going to make my, I joked at the beginning of this episode that I should come up with like a more interesting backstory that I, that I took a trip to South America and I had a hallucination of this monster and I sat down and I drew a picture <laughs> of it. And you, da, da, da. It's like, no, it, it's, I, I'm not, I know that's how the game is played. And, and I know that you're like, it's very kind. You guys like, well, no, your real story is interesting that the way that you made this happen is interesting. And that should inspire people who don't, who don't feel like they were born into those advantages. But at the same time, mm-hmm. the idea of like writing up my worst memory of, you know, or in my, when I was young, my dad used to have a drinking problem, you know, and it's like, he's still out there. He's in recovery. He's doing, doing great. I'm so now I'm going to dredge that back up because it makes for a fun blog post because it, it's makes for an inspirational. It's like, no, that's not for you. Right. I, I I'm not, I'm not going to dramatize the, the bad parts of myself, but I, I just can't. And I, I will admit I'm as much a voyeur as anybody. I watch TikTok and somebody's, you know, they, they I see it. I'm following the guys in Pakistan where a third of that country is underwater and he's got all of this flood video and showing the homes in his neighborhood under eight feet of water. And, and it's, and I'm just watching this and it's like, okay, but I'm not donating money. So am I watching this because it's entertaining to me? Right. Like this guy's, this guy's showing the devastation of his home, like all of his belongings floating in dirty water. Right. It's like, this is his, this is where he lives. This is like all of his clothes and stuff and his, his pantry and everything. It's like, he's just burying He's exposing his whole life because it's all been destroyed and trying to get it out there to document for the world. Like we're, we're dying over here. But if I then scroll up, my very next TikTok will be about uh, this person who has a kangaroo as a pet. And I watched the funny adventures of their kangaroo trashing their house. And, and it's just part of the feed of, of just, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's, it's right. interesting what people do in their private lives. It's like, man, I shouldn't be seeing this. Right. And, and I, I, gosh, I have to sound so old to anybody who grew up in the social media <laughs> era because you, I, I can't make you understand how weird this is. All of human history, we didn't used to live like this. Right. You didn't know what everybody's kitchen looked like. You, you had a few friends who you went to see, but you didn't, 
you weren't on the inside of all these of all these lives. You just weren't. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and some and when you used to write for cracks, and you would, and I would note, like when I was when I had to make changes, I would note when you would say things like, um, "You're working at your day job, but you wrote every single day." It it didn't even occur to me. Okay, I work. And I work a lot and I work hard, but I need to carve out time somewhere to do this thing that I really, really want to do so I could do it every day. Actually meant something because it was about the process until you told me I didn't know. What that article is about for those that haven't read it, 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 the idea is most people have, if you ask most people, what would you like to be doing later in life like obviously somebody's 86 years old that you're not gonna ask him this if you ask anybody who's younger most people have even if they don't want to be famous they have some sort of a of they've always had in their mind like well i'd like to have a place like by a lake i just picture like a home by a lake and then a job Mm -hmm. i can do from home or love to live in new york right Uh, like a little apartment in new york don't need anything fancy just one of those just tiny little apartment that you know, only probably only like ten, twelve thousand dollars a month in rent. A, a little place, <laughs> one bedroom, oh or overlooking maybe something <laughs> overlooking Central Park. Um, you know, like why well, would like to, or, or I would like to own a little coffee shop. Like I would love, I love the idea of owning. Like it doesn't need to be a chain. Doesn't need to make me a billionaire. Just a lifestyle business where it's just me, a couple people, just enough to support that. Where we're just doing that. The issue is that most of us have that kind of result in mind or if you ask where will you be 10 years from now we like to think well i like to be in better shape but most people the gap between today and what you that thing you want to have is just a black box like you you've not thought about what i would have to do on this day today like this exact this thursday that we're all sitting here doesn't enter into it you're still thinking about the way a little kid thinks i'd like to be an astronaut someday Right. Or the little kid thinks I'd like to be a rock star. Like the, the little kid is not thinking, well, you know, I should move to one of the cities where there's a lot of music. I should move to, to Nashville or to, to LA or where there's a lot of production. And maybe I could get started. You know, I need to, to take, you know, music classes, learning an instrument and then see what my, you know, and then maybe I could become a studio musician that gets you in contact with a lot of, you know, on the production side. And it's a lot about, you know, meeting people. They don't have any of that in mind. It's right. just, I'm a little kid now. It, you know, it, it's like that joke on South Park. There's like a question mark and then profit. It, it's, right. it's like question mark. <laughs> I'm a rock star. And most people, the way the human brain works, we don't conceptualize the future as being real. Like right. most of us on this podcast right now, it, it, we are not able to picture what we will be like when we're 85 and, and in decline and in mm-hmm. our final years, like actually thinking of what your life will be like and and what would you would have done to prepare yourself or whatever? It just isn't real. It, it just so most of our dreams of wanting to accomplish something. What happens is you kind of comfort yourself by saying, "Yeah, things suck right now, but surely by the time in my forties, I will have established myself. I'll own a home. I'll I'll be you know, and or." You see, like the angry young men you see now who insist they just can't date because women are terrible, the incels, and, and it's all that. And it's like, 
they still, when they were teenagers, they had, it's like, well, yeah, I can't talk to girls now, but surely when I'm in my twenties, I'll have a hot girlfriend. But the thought of, well, how do I turn myself into the type of guy that women even want to be around? Like, how do I get from here to there? How do I become the type of person who can provide love to someone else? And and then they reach that age and they still don't have it. And they're still, they're like, well, you know, this is so unfair. And, and it, it's like, yeah, but you're looking at the world to hand you something. And you're not thinking in terms of that these women out there are not objects. They are human beings that have needs. Right. What? are you doing to fill those needs? And it's the same thing. I know that it's like capitalism is ruthless and it's, it's terrible in many ways, but it's still, you're asking what you're going to do for a living. There's a business out there that needs stuff done. What have you done to train yourself to do that stuff? What, if you're frustrated that you can't get a job, that there doesn't seem to be a place for you in the world, flip it around and say, well, what, what can I do to um, to make myself into the thing that other people need? And then basically, if you, the message was, if you haven't done it today, like if you can't make yourself do that today, you'll never do it. Right. Because today and the next 10 years are the same thing. It's just a series of todays. So if you say, you know what, I should take, I should take classes, learn how to do whatever, learn to code, whatever the thing is. Okay. Go look up the classes now, today. Look up what it costs today. Start the financing today. And if you don't feel like doing that, you don't have the energy to do it, or if you feel like you're going to get in shape, but you don't, you can't go for a run or for a walk or to do something today, tomorrow is just another one of these. And next week and next week and 10 years later, you'll be in the exact same spot. It's right. the future does, never arrives. It's just a series of, of today. So it, it is very difficult for most people to think that way. And I think life is set up so that you're constantly so distracted by just putting out fires that you never actually get to think, well, what do I want to be doing 10 years from now? Right. Um, and it's not your fault. It's just, I think humans are not built to think that way. I was curious about like the, the movie of uh, with Don Coscarelli. Um, did like he get like an in perpetuity deal? Like, if he wants to make a sequel, is that possible? Like, would would they make a new deal with you for the like the Spiders sequel, or like could they just write their own sequel and like not work with you, or do you know? Yeah, it's it, it, the way it's built into the contract. He has the right to make a sequel on his own, and then it's built in there what I would get paid for that. Like, they would have to pay me again. Um, but for example, there's a famous anecdote where Stephen King found out that the studio made a sequel to Pet Cemetery when he was at Blockbuster and saw it on the shelf. <laughs> because at mm. some point, at some point, he probably got a check among his giant pile of checks that month, or his accountant got a check for whatever, fifty thousand dollars, whatever trivial fee they paid for the the brand name. But if he wanted to make a movie out of the second book, then he would have to buy the rights to, to the book. Do you see oh, what I'm saying? Okay, yeah, this yeah. actually happened with the Psycho series because when they made a Psycho 2, the author was also writing a Psycho 2 novel. Mm -hmm. It was totally different. 
but the studio it's always in the contract they can just sit down go to a screenwriter say crank me out a sequel to psycho the movie but if they wanted to borrow plot elements from the novel they would have to separately negotiate with the author and i think he didn't want to do it so it, it, these things wound up being separate entities there's a psycho 2 book and a psycho 2 movie that are the movie is not based on the the book um and that actually happens a lot there, there's a lot of times where you maybe didn't even know um that that a movie was part of a book and that it's a book series so like the movie die hard is based on a novel and that's a novel in a series but die hard too like the second novel in that series does not take place in an airport you know what i mean um so yeah and now i I've people ask me the most common question I get by far is, is there going to be another movie? And the answer is that like, I talk to Don all the time basically let, let me, without getting into specifics, if there's a property that a lot of people have read the book or bought the comic book or played the video game, I'm telling you right now, somebody is having a meeting about turning that thing into a movie or a TV these days into a TV streaming series. I'm telling you right now that the issue is so in terms of like, well, are they talking about it? I'm telling you any any book you see on the shelf, if people have read it, yes, someone is talking about turning it into a movie or a streaming series right this moment somewhere. The issue is that talking about it doesn't cost the studio anything they, they, i've been mm -hmm. in many meetings um until they commit money to shoot a pilot or to to get production started another movie it just doesn't mean anything so it's now one of infinite properties out there that i don't doubt someday there'll be another movie or there'll be a tv show i, I it's the the series does well they've now got they're gonna you know have four books that they can work from um, I'm available to help. I, you know, on whatever they want, I'm, I'm here. Um, but it, it's just, there's nothing in, in production yet. And this is just the way it works. Most of the time stuff just sits in a queue of the thousands of projects that somebody someday may make, uh, or, or, or may not. Um, but it, this is, uh, and again, I can't, I said earlier that the getting the movie, made was like like winning the lottery it's the movie didn't get a big run in theaters but it didn't have to it, like it became a hit on dvd and then it, mm -hmm. it goes to it goes to hbo showtime now it's on amazon prime on netflix it ran for like two years and it would get it was in like the recommended module every time i went on there and it at netflix didn't even know it was my movie um so the number of people that have seen that movie take the number that have read all of my books worldwide combined and multiply it by probably 50. Like it's millions, it's tens of millions of people have seen that movie because it just played on cable and Netflix and Amazon prime and showtime. It's just played for years and it's been popular has been in the rotation. And every time it airs some, a certain percentage of people run out and buy the book again. Like that's, that's the difference that having a movie deal makes. And, and if you, Compare me to other, if you like follow other horror authors on social media, they have bestsellers too, but you'll notice they're working like day jobs and, you know, and that they're still just writing on the side. The difference is my thing got turned into a movie that became a cult favorite. That's it. it mm. it's, so I can't, I can't even take credit for that because if he doesn't, if Don Coscarelli doesn't come along, none of this happens. 
I, I think eventually maybe I, I would have gotten a book deal, but it would have been a book deal more like what you expect where the advances, uh, I don't know, $5,000 and, and they print a few thousand copies and some people read it and then it's immediately forgotten that getting that movie made and then having the movie actually be, you know, enjoyed by people and be received as well as it was. That's everything. That's why I'm sitting here right now. Um, what, what I'm curious about is actually your, um, your writing process. Um, I mean, when you come up with, with an idea for what will be your next book, what steps do you follow to get from, I mean, from that point, obviously, to, I'm mean, not saying all the way through to a completed work, but to a point where you're, you feel that it's a complete story? Do you, do you outline? Do you write, like, off the cuff? What, what kind of process do you have? I am unusual in that I outline heavily. Like, I, I outline it to death. I have a giant whiteboard in my bedroom. I'm looking at it right now. I actually do a flowchart of plot stuff, and I've got all of these things where I'm thinking in terms of themes, making sure that the, the payoff ties into the theme and about that there's character arcs. Like, I, I graph it out. Most authors, I think, hate writing that way. They feel that it's restrictive or that it makes the, the story feel mechanical or too clockwork, like it's just, you know, set up, pay off, whatever. I can't, I, I can't, it, it, my attention span is so short and I'm so scatterbrained that if I tried to write, like I mentioned George R. or Martin, like, like he, he writes just discover, he just sits down and puts the characters together and watches things play out. Like he doesn't know where it's going. That's not me. I can't, if I sat down not knowing, if I tried to write a beginning, not knowing the ending, I would, I would write a crappy beginning because I, I, everything I write, I know where it's leading. And so, and because again, I have such attention span problems. Um, once I have an outline in place and I know where everything's going, I don't start at the beginning. The, the first scene I write will maybe something halfway through. I pick whatever excites me the most that day and just start writing there. And, and I can do that because I know, even if I, you know, of course the, the outline gets tweaked as I go, you start writing and you realize something doesn't feel right, but you know why it doesn't feel right because you know what the plan was. And you say, well, you know what? It doesn't make sense for for him to be, like he should be more upset about this person dying. So it shouldn't do what he does next doesn't make sense in the outline. Um, and then you can tweak it and adjust it. And the thing that you wrote, the scene you wrote later, it can change, but it can, it will still be there. Cause like the emotional beat still needs to arrive at that point. Um, so I, I outline it to death uh, and I will have it. Uh, it starts on, uh, like a lot of writers, when I'm walking around, like anytime an idea hits me for a joke, for a scene, for an action scene, for a line, I'll just write it down. I haven't used just the notepad app of my phone um, or a post-it note if I don't have my phone nearby. I've usually got something I can write on. And I just have a giant pile of notes. And then, so the process of getting their novel is I sit down and I've got an outline that starts out very simple and then I build it out more specifically what each character is doing when and then i sit down when, when once i sit down to write i've got in the word doc i've got the outline like almost a list of scenes that i'm going to write and then i start writing them and that the the terror a lot of authors have of the blank page of the white page that's what soothes that in me is having a plan it's like the difference between you know baking a cake from a recipe 
versus if somebody just gave you a pile of ingredients and said like improvise something like you wouldn't know where to start where you are for if you got a recipe you know okay i'm doing this i'm doing this and then there's a lot of room to you know once you know what you're doing you have infinite room to say well no this needs more butter or this needs less of this um, so making a recipe for myself that I'm following. So once I sit down in the kitchen with my ingredients, like I know what I'm making, that's, that's everything. Most writers disagree. Stephen King does not. He said he tried, the, he said his worst books are the ones he tried to outline, outline in advance, even mm. TV shows like Vince Gilligan said, breaking bad. He said the one season everybody ha- hates is when they tried to outline everything that happened. And he says, otherwise, the other seasons, we only worked about two to three episodes in advance. Like all of the plot twists and stuff we came up with on the fly. Like when the season started, we did not know what was going to happen in the final episode. And he said it just, it worked. He said so much more organic. It just works better. You see what the actors did with it and you just go. He's like, we just adjust it on the fly. Um, characters that were supposed to be season long characters, they'll decide to kill them off instead and vice versa. This is so any, any young writers out there. I am not issuing this as the law of this is how good books are written. This is how I do it. This is, that makes me unusual. Mm-hmm. Well, your books are so intricate though. Your, your stories, they have so much detail. I don't know how you would do that without them being storyboarded to death. So many scenes wrapped back to the beginning or someplace else entirely. Yeah. that That's, and that's, that's the, that's the thing. Is it, it they're, if anyone who's read one of the books in the audience knows what already knows what we're talking about, if you go out and read the one, the new one, you'll understand. But there's a lot of looping back of things being set up and then paid off, a lot of callbacks and references, and it's it's very dense. This is why the the outlining process takes probably as long as the writing process because it's um, and I think it helps in that. The outline, you have to understand that I, it's a representation of me dreaming up the story in my head. So it's not like it's not like someone else handed me an outline and said, write a book from this. It's just a way to keep track of my own thoughts because otherwise I would lose, yeah, I would lose track. And then it helps you spot obvious inconsistencies where if you're just sitting down typing, typing, typing in the heat of the moment and you're letting characters voice themselves and grow and learn, you're eventually going to run into traffic jams like well, for this next scene to work, I need this character to be at the wall north of Westeros, but they're currently in the south, and I've already established that it takes months to to travel across this land. Mm -hmm. So now I have to cheat and just have them magically appear. (laughs) Right. Uh, because, Because so much of what's difficult about writing is not dreaming up monsters and characters. It's these mechanical physical things like well now hold on this scene needs the main character the protagonist to be in his car but his car exploded in the previous chapter so do i have him steal a car why would he know how to steal a car or do i move the explosion (laughs) to later Mm -hmm. or do i just change it so that something else explodes and that domino effect of well gosh if i change this i've got to change this i for me it's better to do that at the outline stage than to have it written you know 75,000 words and realize oh gosh it doesn't make sense to have that turn out to be his father because why didn't she recognize him when she saw him that's his mother blah 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 like all of those things that can 
run you aground if you're just writing by the seat of your pants. It can it runs me aground at the at the outline stage, and it's much much easier to fix because it's just I can adjust it in the outline, and now that it's straight in my head. But it does need to be written out because if you ask me, if you set me down at the outline stage and, and ask me to tell you verbally what happens in the book, I would have to go get the outline out because it's too complicated. Right. So it has to be written out, has to be drawn out. And I do physically have it like drawn out on a piece of paper, like, you know, where the characters are, because otherwise just, you know, it, it, a plot inconsistencies, plot holes, things like that. That's how they come about because you reach a point like the author knew they were there. But you reach a point where it's like, well, I can't fix it without rewriting the whole book. So if something feels cheap, like the guy, you know, he was trapped in his car and then it just turns out he had a gun under the seat. It's like, well, they did that because they couldn't think of another way to get him out of the situation without. Mm -hmm. And so whereas I try very hard, like if I'm doing it at the outline stage, I can now go back to the beginning of the outline and say, no, let's let's establish why he's got a gun in the car. And it's and it's got to be something funny. Like when the reader sees it, they can't recognize it as foreshadowing. They just have to think it's something funny that happened. And then later, and you've disguised it well enough so that later when he has the, the he finds the gun, it now it makes perfect sense. It's like, oh, that's funny. It's the payoff to that dumb thing that happened earlier. And you don't know reading it that I came up with the second part first and right. then had to backtrack. Where I think like like Stephen King writing books on a typewriter. Like, how's that possible? <laughs> How were any books written on a typewriter? <laughs> right? <laughs> because if you if I showed you like the word doc for the book that I'm just starting now, it's just it's like the rantings of a madman. <laughs> there's just there's just random phrases and stuff that's pasted in that I know what it means, but it's just a snatch of conversation or it's just a funny exchange that's totally out of context that I've pasted in pasted in because like this is they'll say this when they're at the restaurant here. And then when I reach that point in the outline, it's like, oh yeah, here's that funny exchange. But if you try to look at it, if you looked at a book in progress for me, you're not going to be looking at the first half of a book. You're going to be looking at just this mishmash of junk. It'd, it'd be like listening to a song that's in progress. You're not going to hear the first half of a song. You're going to, you're just going to hear a baseline and, mm -hmm. and like a guitar solo. Like they haven't laid down those other tracks yet. Um, so the idea that and, uh, Dean Koontz wrote this way, where he just wrote straight through, like he would he would write five pages a day, he said, on a typewriter, and would just correct and go back and retype re them until they were perfect, and then that's it. He didn't touch those. Like and he just, it's like a train running straight straight ahead. That amazes me. I I, I don't know how that's because I don't write in a linear way. I want to be able to loop back and back and back and be able to easily do it on a word processor. It's just move all this up here, boom. Mm -hmm. change this character's name throughout the whole book. I've changed my mind. I want this person to be named something else. There we go. Took one second. Like I, I that's, that's the, that's the thing with me is because I, you know, I started writing, you know, late high school, early college, and it was in the personal computer era. Yes. Kids. I grew up as a child in an era before computers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I only have ever known writing, on a word processor. I, I don't, I can't imagine and the people that wrote longhand. That's ludicrous. That's like mm. telling me that you built an entire house using only your teeth. <laughs> I like how you handle things that you don't really want to talk about. 
like there is a scene when uh Amy comes home from Japan and I think I'm I'm sexing to death because I watch a lot of horror. We we all watch a lot of horror. And how you described it, I was dead. It was hilarious. The walrus jackhammering a rose garden. The exact line is he says it's they kind of like she approaches the bed and then it cuts to him saying at her request, I will never describe our lovemaking in detail in these books. If you want to visualize it, just imagine a walrus attacking a rose garden. Right. Um, but it, it also you could, I'm sure that somebody who wanted to analyze me could have fun with the fact that I have no problem describing gore in, in intimate detail. Right. But I, but I feel like it's, I, I don't know. It feels like if I'm the idea that I'm writing like these characters having sex and the idea that somebody is getting like aroused from it is weird. Yeah. And there's a, yeah. And in the in book three, there's a point where John starts to tell like a detailed sex story and Dave like cuts him off and it becomes clear that John was making it up. Uh, he's like, don't, you don't need to add sex scenes to your anecdote. Just tell me what happened. Right. It was clear that John was trying to was trying to juice it up for the readers, and he actually interjects. It's like, no, it, we're not. We don't do this. Right. Uh, so it's a running theme in, in the books. But I again, I'm not. I don't. This is no criticism for the you aspiring writers out there. I have a lot of people listen to me who are aspiring writers. If you enjoy writing sex scenes, if you're able to write them tastefully. Um, that's great. You right. are, you have a skill that I, that I lack. I have a thing where I feel like this is, I, again, I grow, grew up in it. Like a, a, my mother was like an evangelist Christian, like in a very religious part of the, the country. So I, I think my attitudes towards these things are probably very conservative or, or repressed or whatever, right. but I feel like when I'm reading, when I'm reading an author and I can tell what his fetish is. Because he describes like the same body part every time, and and, and, <laughs> and, and like mm-hmm. the way they they have sex, like even though it's different characters, like it's always, you know, she she bent over a table and I took her from behind, and it's like always they always do it that way. And no matter right. who the characters are, it's like oh, that's the author's thing. Right. He, he got turned on writing this, his characters that he created and that he loves. He had them perform sex in a way that he finds arousing uh and i think that's weird and again, you would be you would be totally justified in saying well yeah but you will depict a character that you created and that you love being brutally murdered and you don't even blink that's a very unhealthy attitude to have towards sex and violence i i completely get it i do not disagree i'm just saying uh for someone who writes the kind of things i write i'm still prudish about certain certain things so when it comes to sex Damn. i'm always going to play it for for comedy yeah. uh, or if there's nudity in the stories it's always played for comedy it's something hilarious is happening it's not i'm not lovingly describing someone's body for for you to get turned on again it's no disrespect for people to, to do that there's a place for it i get it uh, and it may be a more emotionally healthy reader wouldn't see it that way um and would just say look it's it sex is beautiful there's nothing wrong with it why would you why why would it be shameful at all i get it uh it's just that's it's just me i'll probably always be like that no i was just gonna um say it's it's i'm a aspiring writer i guess you would say um and i've written i mean violence and i've written downright filth 
um, when it comes to like erotic stuff. So it, I, I agree. There's, I mean, there's a, there's a time and a place for those sort of depictions, and it's a, it's a different level of intimacy being able to write violence and gore versus being able to write sex. So it, it's, I, I agree. It, it, it belongs in certain places, and it does not belong in certain places. Yeah, and, and like anything else, it, it also comes down to the execution. Um, right. And I think I feel like you can tell the difference of the way sex is written by some male authors and some and certain female authors. Like, there's some stuff where the way you know where, where they're they're objectifying like the woman's body, but it's not it's not from the point of view of this male character is objectifying her. It's like let let us reader objectify her together. Right, and, <laughs> right. You know, or, yeah. or or where they're inserting um, thoughts and behaviors into the woman that that purely make her like a sex machine for the mm -hmm. story, and and you know, I, I can I can name authors that are very good about that, and some that are very bad, including some great authors of the past, where it's like this is just the way, you know, this is the way they. I, I have this theory that a lot of the great authors from the past were incels, like they were extremely bitter about women, or they, mm -hmm. they have been through multiple angry divorces, and it, it, you can feel it coming <laughs> through in their in their writing. Um, but yeah, and it, it's um, I was trying to think of an example of a book that handled it really well, and I'm I'm failing at the moment, but I know there's been you know there's been several uh, in like the last. One of the books I read most recently. Have you read? Um, it's called "This Is How You Lose the Time War." I haven't. By Max Gladstone and another, but it's it's a series of letters between two time traveling two women, and they're like on opposite sides of this these time traveling armies. Like they do battle by going back in the past and and tweaking events, and then going into the future, mm. and and but they fall in love, and that so it's like this love story that spans. Uh, centuries and, and thousands of years because they hop back and forth in time and they start out as enemies and and, and uh it's just, just this very beautifully written uh, piece of it's like poetry between the two of them and it's deeply intimate in a way that uh it, it doesn't it doesn't depend on the reader to like visualize their bodies or find them arousing it, it gets deep into how how like what they're feeling and how passionate they are for each other and like it's deeply sensual but it's not it's not in a way where i felt like the this is a male author writing porn for themselves to, mm -hmm. to, right to read or the same way some uh, film directors the way you know like the way quentin tarantino shoots feet yeah, um, yeah. It's like, oh, he's a foot guy. He has made it clear he is a feet are his thing, and I'm. It's a little weird that these <laughs> actresses who are working for him, like, uh, it's like, okay, this scene you're gonna have your feet right up in the camera, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Uh, I feel like you might be jerking off to your own movie later, but right. <laughs> uh, if he's listening, I I don't know that you're doing that Quentin Tarantino thing. <laughs> I just it feels like it's not part of the story and it feels like you're indulging your own weird mm -hmm. thing at right. studio expense and and making us watch which makes me feel weird but uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> has that weird level of voyeurism that I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable with yeah where it kind of seems like you stopped the whole movie for us to look at this person's feet uh right but, 
and that and that you're now in a position where nobody can tell you not to do that. So anyway, I don't know, I don't know how I got off on that, but <laughs> so how how many more books do you have? Like a number you might stop at, or is this just just keep going until the wells dry? Yeah, so I again I'm extremely in an extremely privileged position. So I a few months ago signed a three book deal with the publisher. So oh. there'll be another book in the Zoe Ash series will be the next one that comes out next year. There will be a standalone book that is not part of any series, which okay. these days that's, that's rare because most mm-hmm. pushers want a series. Right. Um, and then the uh, fifth John, Dave and Amy book will be, will follow two years after that in 2026, assuming the world is, still exists. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have written the, thing about me writing these so that each one is a self-contained story and each one comes to a satisfying ending is that idea is that if I should never be able to write another one, like if, if my health should fail, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. It's, you know, or if I, that it would be that each one should be a satisfactory place to leave the entire, entire series. Like John dies at the end. Like what part of my challenge as an author is getting people to read the second one because the first one doesn't end on a cliffhanger. No one, no one read this book is full of spiders to find out what happens next because it, it ended like it was a complete story and spiders ended and it's a complete story. The third book was called what the hell did I just read Right, a novel? Um, and each time it ends, like, it's like, if, if I'm never, never able to come back to these characters, that's a satisfying place. Same thing with the Zoe novels that my science fiction novels take place in the future. I've written two of those. The last one was called Zoe punches the future in the dick. Yeah. Um, and each one ends on, that's it. It, it tells that tale, the arc is finished. And then the idea is that either I can come back to it or, or not with the way the rule I have made for myself is I will not sign a contract for a book unless I know exactly what that book is going to be about. Mm, I will okay. never sign a contract for John and Dave book seven, eight, nine to be ter- determined later. I will sit down and come up with at least a core theme rudimentary outline. I know what the monster is going to be, what the ending is going to be. Then I will sign the deal. So right. if it runs dry, I never want to be in a position where I have signed a contract to write on a series only to sit down and find out I don't feel anything for this anymore. The, the juices run out. But, mm-hmm. but the nature of the, the series books I've written, the nature of them is that they are in universes in which basically anything can happen. Right. Like if I decided I wanted an entire novel to take place in the old West, it's very easy for me to arrange that. It's uh, mm-hmm. you can see that um, shows like Rick and Morty did the same thing. Like the, the the creators clearly sat down and said, "We want it to be, if we want to do an entire episode that's a parody of this movie franchise of Mad Max, we can do it. We can just have them hop into a universe where they're in a Mad Max type world." So I tried very hard to do the same thing because remember John dies at the end was born as a series of online posts. Um, And uh, it was just going to be this endless thing. Uh, And so it is more set up like a comic book where it's, there's endless possibilities. But for example, one thing I do is each book, the characters do age a little bit. I've tried to not keep writing about 25 year olds because now I'm 47 trying to put myself in the mind of a 25 year old. Right. Very difficult. Um, mm-hmm. So the characters are all like, they don't age in real time, but like they're all in there getting to be 30 now. 
And having reached the age of 30 and not having a job and not having a purpose in life, I still vividly remember that. So I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable writing that. So it's not a situation where I have to like pretend to to where it's like Spider-Man's always a teenager. I have to like always keep coming back to the same, the same thing. It's not like a sitcom where, where it's just, you have to keep recycling the same formula. It allows me to say, okay, well, what would, when these characters are 40, how much different are they approaching problems than when they were young? And then you make the story about that. You, you don't try to keep keep it in stasis because the goal is to write, you know, these until I die. Hopefully the whole idea of, you know, like building in another novel that's not, like I started with the Zoe books, I started another series on purpose. And I'd even the next deal, I have a standalone, just a book that's its own thing. That's my design. I, I don't. I don't want to be locked into just writing the same series uh, forever. And I know a lot of authors have been in that position. I know that the guy Sir Arthur Conan Doyle felt that way about Sherlock Holmes. That he felt like he had just been trapped into forever writing about the stupid detective. Mm-hmm. But and so he tried to write other things, and I, I'm sure some of them are great. I've never read them because he will always be the Sherlock Holmes guy in my mind. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that's what keeps it fresh for me if if i if i was sentenced to just have to write john and dave and amy books for the rest of my life i do think i would run out of gas pretty quickly yeah like even even as expansive as the universe is i think i I would i would still feel like i was being uh restrained or whatever but Mm -hmm. right that's smart well, that's yeah, good. Then, I, I just wanted to make sure I had more books to look forward to. That's all. <laughs> totally selfish question. Yeah. <laughs> but the one thing I will try not to do is if I if I genuinely don't feel anything for it anymore, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to turn out a bad one. Um, okay. it, like no matter how much fans ask for it, because I think in some cases they would prefer to have like a bad book than than no book. I won't. I won't do that. It's if because uh, I'm not as prolific as a lot of authors. Like good God, Stephen King writes a book a year and sometimes more than one book a year i cannot write that fast i don't know how i don't know how he does it um and i know that in, in once upon a time you said what well, was cocaine right was, you know, <laughs> 65 hours in a row and writing half a novel in one stretch uh but these days even now he's gotten older and, and even now he still is crank stuff out I, that's impressive uh, that re- genuinely impressive i'm not I, I don't know how i don't know how that's done uh, i more I more identify with the authors who go a few years between releases because they and they they need time to kind of think think through things. Yeah, those are the those are the writers that I both hate and love. The ones who take forever to put in a new book. Yeah, and I know like the, I I brought up George R. R. Martin a few times in this episode because his situation because you know, I read the Game of Thrones novels when when I didn't know about them until the the show came about. So read, read the novels and just marveled the sheer number of characters, the sheer volume of world building he has to do is mind boggling. There's so much to keep track of, but I swear to God, as the books go on, you can see him struggling with that right. because trying to, it's, it's easy to start a new character. It's easy to introduce a new area. That's fun. Like it's it's brand new in your mind. Like oh, here's it's got, oh, this will be so cool. He's a knight and he can do this, and he's also magic. And he can do, and you can see him 
get addicted to adding things. <laughs> so he just keeps adding characters much fast at a much faster rate than they die and keeps right. introducing <laughs> subplots because you can tell to keep himself entertained, to keep himself mm -hmm. energized. It's like, well, yeah, but what if there was another wrench thrown into this plot? Like, like we're all bored waiting for Daenerys to get to Westeros. What if there was a completely separate invasion by this other guy who may also be an heir to the crown? Well, that'd be a fun complication. And you see him adding things. And it's like, no, you've only got two books left. <laughs> You're at a point. You've got to start tying stuff up. Like these, right. and, and so you saw them struggle with this in the TV show where characters just started running into each other from across the world. They would just wind up at the same tavern. It's like, no, it's fine. Uh, Tyrion and th that other guy, they're just, they're together now. And then, and then now he's with Daenerys. Like they, he, they started and you can see these TV writers and people got so mad that they were trying to wrap things up and that's hard. There's so many threads and the books are 10 times as complicated as the show was. So I can imagine him just sitting there at his, he still uses like an MS-DOS word processor, I think. Oh, no. And him sitting there trying to, because to bring something to resolution is so much more difficult. It's the difference between, I don't know, like, like making a cake and eating it. <laughs> it it's. Or or serving it away. It's the hard part is trying to bring it to a satisfying conclusion because again, when stuff is new, writing the beginning of a book is a blast because it's all new. Like you are un, you're pulling out all of these cards to show the reader. It's like I'm taking you on this journey, and there's all these intriguing hints of what's to come and all this foreshadowing and all this mystery. Who was that guy? What did he want? What was in that box? And then actually telling them what was in the box that's the that's work because you know to bring that home to land that plane in a way that's satisfying is difficult because right. you know they have certain expectations you know you promise them certain things well good god to write something on the scale of of those novels and there's what is there five of them i guess and then in the last one was was the same book but split into two and they're all each one is so long and there's told from all these different points of view and to say, okay, now I've got to wrap this up. I have to bring Jamie Lannister to a satisfying conclusion. Like after everything he's been through, I have to bring Tyrion to a satisfying conclusion. I have to bring Daenerys' journey to a satisfying conclusion. The scale of that task gives me anxiety, and I'm not the one writing it. Right. <laughs> like, like me imagining him having to do it gives me like a feeling in my gut. Like, oh, God, how's he going to? And the idea that he's now sat there and that it's been, how long has it been since the last book? 10 years? Something like that? It's been a long time because the show ran the entire, ran without a new book coming. The entire show came and went. Game of Thrones came and went without a new book. Yeah, and that and ran right. eight seasons? And it ran eight seasons. So it's like, and the fans are getting angrier and angrier and more and more entitled and more and more, like they're they're sending him mail about, well, you're going to die before you finish this. You're You're old. Right. What must it be like? <laughs> what you need is a letter reminding you that you're old. And they're like, "Well, you're you're 73 and you're overweight. Like, like you're not going to live long enough to finish. Even if you get this next book out, you're not going to finish it." It's like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> uh, and the idea that you you know that you're reaching the end of what the average lifespan is, and that there's legitimately a question of, "Am I going to live long enough to bring the story to a satisfying conclusion?" The creative part of my brain would just go dark mm -hmm. under that kind of stress.
Right. Like I would sit there, I would be unable because every sentence you type, it's like, is this sentence worthy of the 10 year wait? <laughs> is this the scene I just wrote, this line, the final line I wrote for Jamie Lannister, is that final line before he dies or whatever happens to him? Is that going to be satisfactory for people that have been following this guy's story for 30 years or however long it will have been? And they've been waiting for, for 15 years to find out what, what how his story ends. This line that I just wrote, is that payoff good enough for what these people, you know, how mad these people got to, to buy their loyalty back? Nothing would be good enough. I would just keep, like, it doesn't shock me in the least that he's not finished it because I wouldn't, it, it would, the pressure and, and like the scale of, like of the fandom when the show came out and became a mega hit and it suddenly becomes so much bigger than it was when it was just a book series. I can't mm. imagine. I cannot imagine. Just wow. uh, just write a book from the, the point of view of the Starbucks cup on the edge of the table, and that can be your whole conclusion. But, but that's the thing is you like I have tremendous freedom to do whatever I want because the books don't take them very themselves very seriously. And I feel like the fans give me a tremendous amount of leeway because this is still perceived as a niche book series. It's weird. It's not an everyday thing. Most people can't go to Thanksgiving with their family and ask them if they've read this book is full of spiders. The, the average person's not going to, you're not going to talk around the water cooler with your coworkers about it. So I have a, a level of freedom that he doesn't have. Like I can make fun of myself, but people right. take his book so serious and the way fantasy readers they they the way they care so much it's on a level that's hard to comprehend mm -hmm. that you almost couldn't make a joke about a strange cup on the table or something like that <laughs> the insert a little like you know this is all goofy what we're doing right like we're all we're all pretending that this that that these you know it's it's boobs and dragons and stuff and we're all pretending like this is so serious like no you can't do that your fans will hate you you will get actual hate mail <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> and I get people are saying, well, he's a multimillionaire and, and you know, boohoo. I feel so bad for him. Man, it's to a writer, that's not what matters. Right. You can't, you can't write. If you were, if he wrote it to become a multimillionaire, he wouldn't have written it because the energy that you need to inject this kind of life into a story in a universe, you need to have spent thousands and thousands of hours of daydreaming that universe. And right. you didn't do it for money. You did it because you had to get it out of your head. The idea of getting so rich and successful, like where there's freaking merchandise of your book, there's toys and Halloween costumes, and it, it, where the money is is so there's so much at stake that now you, it's not just writing your whatever daydream you have. You're now part of a corporate machine. Mm -hmm. I can't, it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work for me. So yeah, I do feel bad for him because I think as a creative person. Having that kind of wealth, I don't think I would enjoy it if I had this much anxiety tied up in this this series has been left undone. People are mad. Like I just it wouldn't matter. All this stuff wouldn't matter. The press getting to go to Comic Con, all the fans, the autographs, that stuff wouldn't make up for the fact because ultimately the writing is what matters. You live in your head and you live with these characters. And he, as far as I understand it, he doesn't like drive. A Lamborghini, like he's not doing anything. He's not living like, you know, a, a rapper. He's he's not. He doesn't wear giant gold chains out in public. He's still just. He lives in the same town in the same home he had lived in, 
always it's mm-hmm. this is the number one place for macabre cults classics and horrors for synopsis reviews and news go to macabre.com thank you for listening signing out until the next one